Hi, everyone, and welcome to Small Biz Gone Viral, an attempt via podcast to humanize the impact COVID-19 is having on small businesses through conversations with the humans that run them. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau. Today's guest, Mark Goldberg, is from a little off the show's beaten path, coming from the world of venture capital. I'm excited to hear more of a macro perspective as someone who has his fingers in many pies. I usually list a fun fact about my guest, but I'm actually going to save my fun fact for the interview because Mark should hear this one. Today is May 21st, 2020, two full months after our first episode. Keep in mind that though it now seems like a lifetime ago, the first COVID-related death in the U.S. was only 11 weeks ago, March 1st. Worldwide cases have now surpassed 5.2 million, along with 334,000 deaths. The U.S. alone has had 30% of those cases, topping 1.6 million cases and 96,000 deaths. Keep in mind, the U.S. only represents a little over 4% of the world's population. On to equally dire employment stats. Weekly unemployment filings decreased. Sort of. Although the number of first-time unemployment filings is at its lowest point since mid-March, there are two things to keep in mind. First, 2.4 million people in one week is still three times worse than the pre-COVID record. Second, on top of the 2.4 million, an additional 2.2 million filed for a special type of government support, pandemic unemployment assistance. That brings the total number of filings to 43 million. Put differently, one in four U.S. workers has applied for jobless aid in the last 10 weeks. As the pandemic seems destined to continue through summer and into the fall, governments of all sizes are trying to balance the economy with public health. Here in San Diego, restaurants were just given clearance to reopen, though with significant limitations. Meanwhile in D.C., Congress seems stuck on how to move forward, with Democrats proposing ideas including loan forgiveness for frontline workers, extending pandemic unemployment assistance, and another round of the PPP, while Republicans are more inclined to weigh the economy more heavily than public health risks and would rather hasten a reopening. Moving to the stock market, something we will definitely ask our guest about, the Dow Jones finished the day at 24,400, up from its COVID low point of around 21,000. I am personally confused why it keeps going up when it seems like the dumpster fire that is U.S. employment seems to burn brighter every day. Okay, let's go ahead and get to the interview. I gave a little more economic background than normal because today's guest is my good friend, Mark Goldberg. Mark is a partner at the top tier venture capital firm, Index Ventures. Their portfolio includes the zero commission trading app, Robinhood, Slack, Deliveroo, and Good Eggs. I have so many questions and so little time, so let's get into it. Mark, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Grant. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. So I'm super excited to have you here today because, you know, as I was telling you uh, before the show, the first eight episodes of this, all of the guests were kind of more traditional small business owners or entrepreneurs in the sense that they are in the world of entertainment and they are their business. The reason why I'm bringing you on the show today is because I kind of want, I want to hear your insights as someone who is... Uh, has their fingers in so many different pies, if you will, having invested in, I don't know how many companies. Uh, I was just obviously on your website doing a little research before the show, and it seemed like 
you have what 50 60 100 200 200 companies 200 companies okay so you can't even list them all yeah that's, that's true so i guess before we start i do have to say my, my little fun fact which i saved uh for for you and that is the first time i ever met you i didn't know i was meeting you and what <laughs> i mean by that is i played uh, Ultimate Frisbee, as many good podcasters, I'm sure, did in college. And I remember walking to the gym one night, and I saw your brother, Dan, who is your twin brother, and I said, Dan, where are you going? And he goes, oh, don't worry about it. I'll meet you at practice. And then I get to the gym, and there, there Dan is. And I go, Dan, what? I just saw you headed the opposite direction. And he goes, oh, yeah, that, that's my twin brother, Mark. Yeah, I have a twin. And you guys would just play off each other and just pretend to be the other person anytime someone mistook you for the other person. That was 15 years ago, and we're still doing the same routine. Yeah. <laughs> Are your guests allowed to reverse fun fact on the host? I don't see why not. Uh, so my fun fact is uh, I'm speaking to you from Berkeley, California, where I've lived uh, for the better part of seven years. But the reason I'm in California and not in New York, which is where I started my career, is because I came to visit you um seven and a half years ago and i had such a good time in san diego and being in the water and being in the mountains that i decided i needed to move to the west coast and that was one of the biggest decision points for me in my life so in some ways uh your hostess duties are what got me to right where i am today well thank you i'm, I'm glad to hear it and uh i i just, i'm equally proud that i know you you block out time on your on your corporate uh calendar <laughs> am i i'm i'm double double uh fun facting here that you block out time on your corporate calendar that is uh uh what's known in the industry as a board meeting and that's that of course is a a pre-work surf uh surf sesh you got to protect your time i think a small business owner will will certainly understand that oh absolutely absolutely okay uh, so before we get into too much of the nitty gritty, can you give me kind of an overview of what is venture capital? I feel like it kind of gets a bad rap. Uh, obviously, you know, it, it certainly provides some uh, kind of a lubricant to the economy. So tell me about the, about the in the broadest sense, like what, what does uh, venture provide to the economy? What do you do and what does index do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think this is a, a terribly opaque industry that uh, we insiders haven't done a good job of, of representing. Um, so venture capital is just one way of raising money if you're a business. Um, I'm sure a lot of listeners on your show will um, have faced that point where their business is, is doing well or where they need you know some capital to bridge them from one season to the next um and they yeah, have to figure first out, of all that that's very kind of you to say a lot of my listeners as if there are a lot of <laughs> listeners but, but continue continue <laughs> i think anyone who has who has run a company has come to the point of do i go it alone do i keep self-funding or do i find another source of funding this business and i think a lot of folks generally end up in that that latter bucket where they, they do need some outside some outside money to support the operations and for the majority of businesses what that means is going to friends and family, going to a bank, um, potentially getting a, a, a loan um, that that's needs to be repaid. But for, for a handful of companies, uh, venture capital is available. And what venture capital is, is, is um, 
you are investing as a, as a venture capitalist in a company um, and trying to buy a, a minority position in that company, maybe 10, 20, 25% of the business. And uh, you're very much hoping that, um, you know, if the business is well and they sell the company five, 10, 15 years into the future, that um, that's going to be a great outcome for the entrepreneur, for the, you know, the employees of the company and ultimately for you as an investor. Um, you know, the thing that's a, a little bit different about venture capital is the way that my business model works is we are um, incentivized and optimizing for businesses that have the potential to be enormous multi-billion dollar public companies. And so in some ways, um, you know, when you're investing at the early stage, you're investing almost like in the same way that you'd go to a casino and put money on red or black or, um, you know, however you want to roll the dice. Uh, venture capital is a game where um, you might make 10 investments and eight, you know, fail, one returns the money and the 10th one is Facebook or Uber or uh, Dropbox. And that pays for the ones that didn't work out. And so, so the way that, yeah. I was just say, so, so to keeping with that uh, casino analogy, you're not putting, you're not putting money on red or black. You're going to the roulette table and putting all of your, or, or putting a, a sizable chunk on 27 or three, that, right? So the low, exactly, low odds, high return. That's exactly right. You can tell how much time I spend in casinos by my uh, inability to make a proper analogy there, <laughs> but that, that's exactly right. The odds are very much stacked against the investment working out. And that's the game that we play. Um, and the reality is if you get even one in five or one in 10 investments, correct. Um, if the outcomes are large enough, the expected value of a basket of, uh, of those investments does quite well. And as an asset class, it, it, it historically has done well, um, for the people that have been able to get those sort of ratios. So, uh, you know, maybe to humanize this a little bit, I would call venture capital, the jet fuel of, um, of, uh, fundraising. Um, whereas, you know, most companies are cars and if you put jet fuel in a car, it's, it's useless and probably harmful. Um, but if you put jet fuel into a rocket, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, the rubber hitting the road and it, it works out well for everyone. So it's an esoteric asset class. Um, but that's what our business does is we try and find those rockets and we try to fuel them. Right. So, uh, for a company like mine, venture capital is probably not the right fit, right? I'm, I'm going to be looking more for that, that friends and family. If I were looking to take on money, something in the somewhere between the 10,000, hundred thousand, you know, maybe four, five, four, five, six zeros that that's, that's where I would be looking, right. Or four, four, yeah. Four, five zeros. Uh, yeah. for you, 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 what's, what's the, is there a minimum investment that you're looking to make? And is, and would you say also that, there is sort of an industry standard. I know obviously there are like, you know, all, all investment firms are different sizes, but in the world of venture capital, not friends and family, not angel investing, but venture kind of that third sort of tier or fourth tier, I guess, if you wanted to include self-funding as like the first rung. It's, you know, it's less on the quantum of dollars. Um, so there's not a hard floor of it has to be a million dollars or $5 million or $10 million. It's again, more of that paradigm of the questions I'd be asking you if, if we were having a fundraising conversation are, do you think you're building a multi-billion dollar company? And if the answer to that is no, then we're, you know, we're probably not the right fit, me for you and you for me. Right. Um, so it's less about the, the size of dollars. Um, 
you know, in practice, we'll write anywhere between a million dollar investment and a hundred million dollar investment. Um, but it, there, it's it's really much more about the paradigm of do we think there's a lot of risk but a lot of upside, and and that's the kind of fit that we're looking for. Right. I know in my industry, there are really only a few companies that kind of come to mind, and the ones that have approached. There's one actually in mind. I, I it's a, a a juice company, and they're. I believe the only example that actually comes to mind of someone in the natural foods world planning from 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 the very beginning to fundraise, 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 and just try to scale as quickly as possible. And they did it successfully. And my understanding is that they, I'm not sure if they were ever actually profitable pre-acquisition, but they they acquired so much shelf space in within the ref, within the refrigerated section that they then became value that, that that real estate became valuable to i believe it was pepsi who ended up acquiring sure. them sure. um and, and and that's kind of like the almost the silicon valley style of of growth where grow fast and think about profitability later as long as you know as uber and lyft and so yeah. many other companies have kind of showed us it's like if, if you get big enough, you can find profitability. Maybe if not, if you're like pets.com or something, I don't know. Sure. But you know, <laughs> there's always going to be a, a, a counter example. But um, it, it's just it's very rare in the natural foods world. Like I think of a couple other who ended up taking venture venture money, but it, it really really rare. And that's probably a reflection of the multiples that are available in our industry. Whereas you know w- what you're looking for is you're looking to make a million dollar investment and have that be return at a hundred million or 200 million. Or, That's right. And, and they're just, you know, outside of that, well, really out of the Bay area and New York, like there aren't a ton of uh, opportunities for that type of explosive jet fueled growth. That's exactly right. And um, you know, I'd extend it. It's not just natural foods. It's really anything that has physical goods. Um, really is a difficult investment to make as a venture capitalist. Software historically has been the wheelhouse of venture capital fund returners. And so, um, you know, why is that? It's because you talked about multiples. It's about being able to have operating leverage where if you don't have physical goods, um, you know, you and I are speaking here on Zoom as a platform and the marginal cost of adding another Zoom user um, is, is virtually nil. And so when you have a software platform that reaches hyperscale, um, the profitability characteristics uh, are are kind of beyond what we generally see with with companies with physical goods. I just want to also caveat this with saying the goal for for small business owners should not be to raise venture capital money. If I ever started a company, I would not raise venture capital money. Um, you know, why would you want to? Uh, you know, unless you really have that ambition to shoot for the moon and take that own sort of risky roll of the dice. Um, you know it's it's not an attractive form of capital. And I think you're much better off, uh, you know, taking that loan that you pay back and you still own 100% of your company. Um, and yeah, to me, that's that's likely the path I would go if I ever started a company, which I don't have the chutzpah to do. So, uh, you know, it's it's easier as an investor where where you're, uh, you're, you're hedged against 200 sure. investments. Sure, yeah. And, and, and this is something that I talked about on the last show about how... Uh, having resources both in in time and money to be able to hedge bets. Uh, the example that I used in the last show was how companies like Google are going to be just fine 
because even if they had no, even if they had no idea what they were doing and when, when COVID came, they have so much money and so much talent that they have such a long runway that they, that they're going to be just fine. Right. And obviously like they're not, they weren't hurting anyway. And they're, I'm not saying that they were in a bad position to start with. I'm just saying them as a, you know, compared to a company like us where like, we need revenue coming in month after month and, and we don't really have those resources to kind of just throw at the wall and see what sticks. That's kind of where you are as a, as an investor is you, you're not counting on any one company to make it. You're, you're, you're looking to have one company to go a hundred X and if 50 others burn out, that's fine. You're still yeah. assuming those are all equal investments. You're still, you still doubled your money. So That's right. yeah, two, two, two very different things. I can also say having been uh, in the startup world and be, having been a startup for longer than I would have initially thought. I think when I first started this company, I was like, okay, yeah, we'd like to get, uh, and maybe this is because of in school, you read case studies and things happen really quickly, or you listen to how I built this. And it's like the, the Airbnb guys who were like, yeah, four months in, oh man, I had some credit card debt. and then. South by Southwest happened and now I'm a billionaire. And it's like, that's not what happens for, you know, 99.9% .9 of small businesses. I, I think there were some, some cereal boxes that they sold at one point to, to fund the company. Somewhere yeah, in that story. Yeah, but like, yeah. Yeah. So unrealistic, but, but that's, but that's what gets publicized. And yes. so I guess my, my point is you say you would never take venture capital money. I'm not saying I would take venture capital money, but there are definitely days where I'm like, man, if we would have just taken a bunch of money in the beginning, I would either be onto the next thing or I would be like a bazillionaire because that money yeah. would have fueled the growth. So basically you, you either, you know, you explode on the ground or you take off into flight, but it's one or the other for the most part. I, I think that's right. Uh, Grant, I, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. It's yeah. I've actually said explicitly that in the next company that I start, I will be raising money earlier with a <laughs> goal of either flying or failing much, much earlier. Okay. So I, because the, the premise of the show is basically getting into kind of the, the impacts that COVID is having on small businesses. Can you tell me how COVID has, has affected your portfolio I know that um, one of the stats that I read today was 40% of people, of workers who make 40000 or less have applied for uh, unemployment or have had, have had some uh, job loss or have been affected with their take-home pay, 40%. Um, obviously, the companies that you are investing in, I would say, well, not obviously, but and so please affirm or deny this most of the companies that you are investing in probably don't have a lot of employees who are making less than 40,000 they're probably you know you're in the world of tech you're in the bay area you know historically all-time high costs of living so i'm assuming that you're investing generally in people who are making if not six figures and probably somewhat close to it as like a, a baseline entry level job yeah Right, yeah, yeah. Highly educated engineers for the most sure. part, software world, right? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, certainly in the Bay Area, that, that's kind of the, the, the salary range. Right. Um, so when you are making, um, when you're making investments, 
how much runway are you generally looking to give a company in terms of its its cash flow uh, and ability to have those resources to grow? We want a company to have two or three years of runway. And so the way that we think about sizing a fundraise is generally that as the paradigm. So if you okay. were burning $100,000 a month, you would multiply that to by 24 to 36 months. And that would be the amount of money we'd recommend you go and raise. Um, you know, obviously that's more art than science because a lot of times these companies are, uh, you know, it, it's difficult to predict exactly how much money they will they will need to consume. Um, sometimes paradoxically, the better they do, the more money they burn. Um, but ultimately, you know, the paradigm we're kind of guiding people towards is you don't want to have to go fundraise again three months from now, six months from now, you know, right, raise two to three job. years of full-time job. You don't want, you want to be building a business, not fundraising, you know, raise enough for two to three years of growth. And, you know, that, that's generally what we stick right. to. So talk to me about what you're seeing kind of broadly, and then we'll go into more details, but just in, in general of, of your 200 plus companies, uh, are you seeing trends? How much are you, how much are the, is the portfolio affected? I, I know you're, you're by very, very nature of being an investor, you're looking to diversify. Yeah. So I would assume there's, there's no universal uh, response here, but just kind of paint with some broad strokes, what's happening in, in your portfolio. Sure. And um, let me talk about this in, in two different ways. I'll talk about how our companies have been affected. And then I'll talk about how many of our companies customers of which many many of whom are small businesses have been affected and i i think the two are kind of important to uh to distinguish there so of our companies um many of them have been severely impacted um and if you think about you know we talked about the uh the, the broad-based nature of our industry and the um the venture capital fund that i work at the name of the of the, the fund is is index ventures um with a capital i but if you think about it with a lowercase, you know, ultimately we are as an index on the growth of the economy in many ways. And technology has really become a, a horizontal um, bet on the growth of the economy. It's, it's not just one area. And I'll try to give some illustrations of companies that tackle different parts of the economy and how they've been affected. But overall, many of our companies have been impacted. The majority of them, well, I'll, I'll put it into thirds. About a third of them are what I would, would call severely impacted. So these are companies that might be serving travel. Um, you know, we're not an investor in Airbnb, but there's been a lot of press around how Airbnb is faring in this period. And I think that Airbnb is an iconic company that 15 years from now will exist and will be fueling the growth of alternative lodging. Um, but this year, they might do 90% fewer uh, stays than they did in 2019. And so you can imagine for the entire travel industry, uh, those dynamics exist, of which we're not immune, and our companies aren't immune. Um, so there's a third of companies that have been impacted by industries like that. Um, a third of our companies, I would say, are moderately impacted. So they might have thought they were going to do, you know, this uh, amount of growth, and instead they'll do half that amount of growth. Um, what does that mean? It means that they thought they were going to hire, you know another 50% of their workforce, and instead they aren't gonna hire anyone, and they're probably gonna do some modest layoffs. Um, and then there's actually a bucket of what I would call COVID winners, which is uh, kind of a, 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 a crude term to throw around when so many people are suffering in this economy. No, it's it's something that we've talked about on this show. Okay, and they, they're, they're clear beneficiaries. The Amazons, so for example, yeah. 
Sure. Amazon, uh, the Instacarts, which is not an indexed portfolio company um, that are doing online grocery, uh, the yep. platform you and I are discussing on Zoom, where I, I never thought I'd see the day where my wife's 95-year-old grandfather would be on a on a, a, a face, uh, face-to-face virtual call, and yet here we are in this environment. Uh, we're investor uh, investors in a number of, of gaming companies, which have had their best uh, years by a, a, a magnitude of multiples uh, than prior years. We're investors in telemedicine companies, which have uh, gone through the roof in this period. So there, there is this bucket, um, and I would call it a minority of our companies that have seen quite a bit of tailwind from from this. Uh, maybe another one worth calling out is um, work from home tools. So uh, I don't know if, if you or your listeners would use Slack, but that's a an index portfolio company. And you know, with more people at home, uh, there's more people willing to try new tools to communicate with one another outside of the office. Um, so that's that's broadly how. Uh, the index set of companies has been impacted. What I think is probably worth diving into is how some of our companies service small businesses and and how those companies have been impacted. So I'm just going to give you one example, which is not San Diego, but close to you in LA. Uh, we, we're investors in a company uh, that sells software to hair salons. Um, I desperately, uh, and I'm sure many people on this uh, who are listening to this, desperately have needed a haircut in this period of shelter in place. My wife gave me one. There you go. And I I just finally had to, had to capitulate and do that myself this past weekend with my wife, which was a contentious affair. Um, But nobody's going to hair salons. And so if you're selling software to hair salons, which is a wonderful business, because when you walk into a hair salon, you probably have called ahead to make a reservation. You probably are are paying uh, in cash or through a point of sale system. When you get there, there's inefficiency in the scheduling. There's inefficiency in the records that, you know, I go and see a different um, uh, person to cut my hair and none of the information about me or my profile has been stored. It makes sense to digitize an industry that has relied on paper and pen for a long time. And yet those businesses, the end customers have been so impacted that sales are down significantly because of COVID. And so we see these derivative effects in our company, but you see, you know, if you look one layer deeper, you see the human impact of these businesses that are having to decide between um, paying a little bit more money for a software tool than in the, the medium and long term will make sense or laying off an employee at the business. And uh, it, it, it shows how difficult this period is for so many companies. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely those decisions that are being made every day, especially on the small business level where you're deciding, do I, do I keep item A or item B? Do I, is, is this a comfort or a necessity? Yeah. And if it comes down to, do I keep an employee who I've trained and, you know, who I, who I hired and trained and now am personally invested in, I think it is, it's, again, especially on a small business level, it's one thing if, if the suits in the boardroom at Walmart are saying, hey, we need to cut, you know, right. 20,000 jobs. It's like, hey, who cares, right? The, the, the peons, they, they don't, that, that's fine. We, yeah. Who cares? They're just numbers. But it's, I think it's, I think that it's a, a lot harder if you have a six person company and you have to go in and be like, Hey, I know we've worked together for four years and I hired you straight out of college and this is the only job you've ever had. Or, Hey, we've worked together for 15 years and you, I know, I know your kids because they play with my kids and now I have to let you go. It's probably going to be an easier decision for that. Or, or I guess a, a harder emotional decision because emotions play into it more. Uh, on those smaller levels, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, I can only imagine that the sort of choices, the terrible choices people are making right now. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so talk to me about, uh, I, I, I want to hear how the CARES Act has affected your portfolio, because I know that it's a limited limited to people who make less than a hundred thousand, uh, and then B, it's there are limits around the total number of employees within the umbrella companies. Uh, and I know as as I was reading about it, I was thinking about you like when I first read about it two months ago. Yeah. Um, that basically, when companies are tied to venture firms, it's like all of the employees basically get lumped in together. Uh, can you can you shed some light on that? Yeah, so first off, it's complicated. Legally, it's complicated. Um, so I think what you're referring to is this uh, provision in the original CARES Act that was that, that uh, in evaluating your application, they would look to your affiliates, of which if you uh, had an investor that uh, was like a, an index venture, like a venture capital fund, um, there was a chance you could be ineligible, even if you met the criteria of hardship, by virtue of the fact that you had been associated with uh, an owner who had uh, multiple investments in, in other companies. Right. I um, guess you're, you're right. I, I should have, I should have given more specifics there. I believe it was limited to employee or employers who have uh, 500 or fewer employees. I think that's right. right. That's the other and limitation besides a yeah. hundred thousand uh, dollars. That's right. So th there were, I, I think like even abstracting higher, there were, there were, it was very unclear who would be eligible for uh, the sort of uh, relief that the CARES Act could provide. Um, I would say the area that it's that's impacted um, our portfolio companies the most is with the the PPP, the Paycheck Prote Protection Program, um, which was designed to uh, provide relief to companies that may have to lay off employees, um, but would uh, if they could prove that they were impacted by COVID, they could become eligible for two months of payroll relief for said employees such that they could prolong um, you know, paying those people and, and not laying them off, which I think is a, a very um, you know, meaningful uh, program and certainly served uh, the, right, the right end game. Yeah, and um, I, 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 I just interject, I believe that if your company made less than like, or if the loan amount was something in like the million to 2 million range, I can't remember exactly what it was, yeah. uh, but that you would just be presumed to qualify. Uh, I think that's right. And, and, you know, listen, like I, I think I empathize with the people in Congress that were trying, I don't have a lot of empathy for the people in Congress, but I did empathize in this situation where you, on the one hand, you want expediency. You want to get money to people as fast as possible. On the other hand, uh, clearly the faster we move with the less scrutiny means there will be potential for abuse of the program and uh, people that should not be eligible are probably able to, to squeak through here. So I think there's always going to be this, this push and pull between you want to move as fast as possible, but in doing so you might uh, create, you know, an opportunity for bad actors to take advantage of it. Um, you know, there was, so a lot of the debate that's played out here in the tech world and in, in the world of venture capital has been, should a company that has received venture capital money, not not legally, but but morally, should they take this money? Was this money designed for small businesses like Rickaroons and like the local hair salon and like Main Street companies? Or should it be available to any business that is impacted? Um, you know, I think your listeners would probably be annoyed if they found out that Airbnb, you know, took tens of millions of dollars from a program like this. Uh, I certainly would would find that 
uh, even though they, they suffer hardship undoubtedly from the pandemic, um, they certainly have the resources to withstand something that a, a small business with six people, like you alluded to earlier, that has to decide between laying off a family member and, and a close uh, friend and employee uh, would have to do. So I think the debate has more been around uh, around this point. And I think it's, I, I think it's complicated. I think, um, you know, there's some gray area where companies that are, you know, many startups that I invest in have, you know, five, 10, 15 employees and uh, would likely be destroyed by uh, this pandemic, if not for some temporary relief. Um, should those com- companies be eligible? It's complicated. Um, but I, I think that's where we've seen, uh, you know, in the startup world, many companies try and have that debate of, you know, are we eligible? And then should we take this money? If so, um, I would overlay one more thing on that program, which is a lot of companies um, in the tech world have the resources and had the resources at the beginning of this program to get to the front of the queue. And so you had a lot of small businesses um, that had to navigate the bureaucracy of the loan administration process to be eligible for this funding. And if you didn't have a high-powered lawyer to help hold your hand, um, it was probably harder to actually find out. And there was, at first, limited dollars, which I think made this even more complicated, which is, you know, should you uh, stand down and let small businesses navigate this before you go in? So anyway, I, I, that, that's how I've seen the CARES, effect, uh, the CARES Act impact the tech world. And there's more questions than answers, as, as you can see. Yeah, no, I definitely think that it's something that I can see, even as a small business owner myself, I can definitely see the larger implications of, well, if you're a company with 400 employees, just because I'm small, you have, you know, 40, 50, 60 times as many employees as I do. Yeah. So does that mean that you should then qualify for more aid? Or should you be able to give it to 60, 70, 80 companies of my size? Sure. To, con- to continue on and ask those larger companies to maybe bear a little bit more of, of the share, I guess, yep. uh, of, of self-funding. I think what probably most people would agree on is when a company like Whole Foods uh, is asking for help, but is owned by the guy who's forecasted to be the world's first trillionaire. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but he, not only he, I did see it now. Yeah, so Jeff Bezos was was forecasted to be the world's first trillionaire by like twenty twenty six or twenty seven, and then the next trillionaire isn't forecasted to come along for like eight more years or something after that. So basically, the the dude is going to have like I don't know, you know, four percent, five percent of the world's wealth is going to be controlled by like one person, but yeah. he's asking for like some some bailout money. It's like this dude should be bailing out the whole world by himself or, you know, it yeah. could if he wanted to, but, is it, but, you know, kind of the, the basics like fundamentals of economics is, and this is certainly how it's taught in like an econ 101 class, you're going to do what you're incentivized to do. Right. Yeah. And if you're a board of directors, even at a, you know, 150 person company and you're doing pretty well and you have the cash, but you're going, well, we're eligible to get $2 million we're going to turn that down because maybe some public backlash. And then you have to put a, like, what's the price of that public backlash? Do you have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize, yeah. your, you know, uh, your profits, et cetera. So yeah, yeah. you're, you're I right. Think you, I think you nailed it. I think, I think you nailed the dynamic. Yeah. There's, there, there's, there's 
certainly more questions than there are than there is time to to go into that uh in in this episode for sure yeah 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 um so talk to me a little bit about the the companies in i think was it that first third the ones that you said are going to sure. start having some some layoffs what's what's kind of the the worst you've seen are those and and are those the companies that may have been towards the end of their runway anyway uh and and how have you had to weigh um, the decision whether to, to reinvest uh, and kind of maybe extend that runway a little bit or just, or say, hey, sorry, this is gonna extend a lot farther? Uh, it's, a, it's a great question. So um, on the funding piece, uh, if you were a company that needed to raise money in 2020, this is going to be a very hard year for your business. And the reality is, the, the window to raise money has really narrowed so much that there's a good chance your business won't survive if you need to raise money this year um, in the in in the the technology world uh, of which venture capitalists invests. And so um, that is a hard spot to be in, and I think many of those companies won't survive. Um, so how do you how do you get around that? Well, some won't. Some will just fail this year, and that's that's an inevitability. Um, Others are making extremely hard decisions like small businesses are, which is, you know, do I um, lay off 80% of my employees? Uh, do I shut down business units that may not ever be profitable or we thought would be profitable, but not in the environment of which there's no funding available? Um, these are the questions that companies are having right now. And, um, you know, if you were a, an exceptional business that um, that is just being hit hard by 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 this year, um, you're probably going to be fine. But if if you're if you had any challenges before this year, uh, COVID has magnified that and and made it that much harder. Um, the silver lining of this, as as an investor and as anyone in the ecosystem, is generally recessions have acted as crucibles for new businesses. And if you think so, to give a little context to you and to to maybe the listeners. Um, my focus area in investing is in financial technology. I want to I want to fund the next generation of digital banks to go after the Wells Fargo's and Banks of America, uh, Bank of Americas, because I think there's a huge opportunity to improve the consumer experience in banking. Um, most of the innovative companies in my category were were born in 2008, 2009, 2010, um, and I think that we'll look back a handful of years from now and see exactly the same phenomenon which is that a hard macroeconomic uh, condition is a really favorable ground for entrepreneurs to identify new problems and to go solve them. And it looks way worse than it is uh, in the moment, but in hindsight, this ends up being a pretty good opportunity for people to start businesses. Yeah. The, the hard part there, I think, is if you're talking about... Uh, where, where, what, what companies will spring from this? Certainly there will be opportunities. There will also be players like the Amazons of the world who will become even more entrenched. And I yeah. think a lot of their competition will, will unfortunately perish. And I think that that is to the detriment of the, the overall economy and, yeah. you know, competition is competition in general. Um, also, you know, and maybe you can talk to me about how I, I, I'm not sure 
which of your investments I would be directing this question to, but in general, if there are 40 million people who have applied for unemployment, that means, you know, the worst unemployment, the worst national unemployment got uh, in the Great Recession when you had just graduated college and I was just finishing college, 2008, yep. 9, 10, was around 11% nationally. Yep. And right now, uh, I know at the end of April, we were at like 14, ooh, I don't want to get, I'm not married to this, but I, th I think it was about like 14.7%, yep. I want to say. And we're now at predictions of, of hitting 20%, yep. if not more, um, before this is all over. And obviously, the longer this goes on, the more likely it is to continue to snowball, right? If, if yep. it's, if everything were to open up tomorrow and it was like, oh, pandemic's over, there's yep. a cure, it's solved. Okay, well then all of those businesses or, or the vast majority of businesses, either through the PPP or through savings or loans or whatever, were able to survive and rehire. Yep. But for a lot of companies, I, I think that, and I think why, why this is gonna be so different is that this will continue on into the summer places will go out of out of business and then there will be a shortage of of places to reopen because so many of them will have will have just closed the doors forever and so is that going is is that larger macroeconomic employment trend going to affect uh, anything in your portfolio that you can maybe humanize a little bit for us well I'm not sure I'd agree with the, the, the premise. So okay. I think that the key question here that the stock market is every day, you know, placing uh, the, the aggregate sum of everyone's bet on is, is this a secular shift in the economy where there will be larger structural employment, unemployment, or is this a temporary blip of which we will bounce back quickly um, to something that looked like where we were before the pandemic started. I don't know what the answer is. Um, but if you look at where the stock market's trading, certainly a lot of people are hypothesizing that, while it's true, if this goes through the summer, there are businesses that will not survive. Um, but the demand for those businesses will. And so uh, the demand for people eating out at restaurants will continue. Well, I mean, I guess that's the question. So, yeah, so, not, so that right? one, is, yeah, I, I would say I, I agree with you largely that if hair salons go out of business now, that there will be plenty, of, there will be someone else ready to step up and there will still be plenty of trained uh, hairstylists who could step up into, in, and fill those positions. Yeah. I'm not sure though that the, that all of the humans who are enduring this currently will just immediately go back into sitting at restaurants. I completely agree. And um, this is where it gets to this question of like, what, how will the economy and how will consumer behavior change as a result of this? And it's been a, I, just on an introspective level, it's been fascinating to look at how, how I think my life will return to quote unquote normalcy after the pandemic. I'd love to hear what you think. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are asking themselves this question. And yeah. if you would ask, if this had been a three week, a three week blip, I would have said nothing changes. I'm going back to my office as usual when it opens. Uh, life goes on per normal, and you know we're back in you know in, in a status quo that we knew of at the beginning of 2020. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. There are 
ways that I'm uh, uh, that I'm living my life right now that will affect how uh, how my family uh, you know uh, operates in the coming years. Um, I'm not sure uh, you know that I want to be working in an office five days a week or that it's necessary for the work that I do. Um, I, I also am not in the, the camp of no one should ever return to an office because I think that's absurd and there's huge benefits from working with people. But I think, you know, what if there's a silver lining in this otherwise horrible pandemic, it's that it's put a bunch of cold water in everyone's face and, and everyone's actions under a microscope and forced you to think about what do you, how do you want to spend your time? What is valuable time and what is not? Um, one personal uh, anecdote for me, I traveled probably 70 days last year on airplanes. Um, you know, I'm someone who thinks a lot about my carbon footprint. I think a lot about the time away from my family when I have to get on an airplane. And yet, um, you know, 10 weeks into a pandemic, I realized that a lot of that travel was unnecessary. Um, some of it wasn't. Um, I will get on an airplane again, but a lot of it was. And I think that even if the airlines open up and the, the pandemic, there was a vaccine tomorrow, um, my travel in 2021 would be, um, you know, at least half of what it was in 2019. And I think everyone could look at pieces of their life, whether it's eating out, whether it's travel, whether it's um, the way that you interact with your friends, um, you communicate with your family that will change as a result of this. What that ultimately means for unemployment and for the economy, um, I I don't think I'm smart enough to say, but I think those are the factors that will drive it up or down. Sure. Uh, I I guess I I have a couple things there. Um, One, it's wild looking back, and I, I try to I, I try to identify this and, and kind of bring a spotlight to it at the beginning of the show when I'm just going through the stats. But this all started like ten weeks ago. Right? Yeah, I mean, th- like, yeah. and and that that is just mind blowing, and and it's it's crazy to think about just how quickly things have escalated and become quote unquote normal. So I've I've talked about this in prior episodes, but two weeks into this, you saw someone wearing a mask and you were like, what a weirdo overreact much. And then now you see someone and they yes. come within, you know, six feet of you or, or, you know, you're out there pushing your stroller with Gabe and you're like, you, you see someone and you're just going to turn the opposite direction. And you're like, you know, hey, I, I don't want that zombie coming anywhere near me. And like, h- how long is that going to extend? And I think that the longer that this pandemic becomes kind of normalized, the more, the, the longer it will take to rebound to the way it was to the old days, if, yeah. if at all, uh, you know, if, if you watch, uh, go watch a movie that involves subways and crowds and see how uncomfortable it makes you. Uh, I had that experience a few days ago and you look at these people and you say, what, the, what the, right. what the heck are you doing? That's yeah, the most all, dangerous thing those, I've ever look seen. Look at all those risk takers. Look at all those risk. Ta- I mean, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Look at how tightly packed they all are. Right. And that's not a reaction that we would have had 10 weeks ago. Yeah. Um, you're, you're, you triggered a, a thought that, about how when this is all over, there's going to be 40 million people looking for jobs, right? And you were talking about how out of calamity comes opportunity. And from an employer's perspective, when you have a mass surplus of of labor, that's going to suppress, that's going to drive down wages and theoretically should make hiring people just a whole lot cheaper, which will then is, is kind of like 
nature, if nature were the economy, is the economy's way in a capitalist society of like fueling the regrowth into whatever the next boom is going to be, right? Um, you and I have talked about just on the phone uh, about the the stock market and 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 I personally am still like absolutely mind blown that yeah. it is continuing to go up. That's yeah. what's crazy to me is it went down to, to 20 around 21,000. So it, it dropped, I think like 27, 28% off of its all time high around 29.5. And then since then, it's just been like inching its way back up. And right now it's, at, it's a little below 25,000. So it's, it's basically up, you know, it's, it's of the hundred percent that it lost. It's all, it's almost recouped 40 ish percent of that. That to me is crazy. Because every every month, unemployment is just getting higher and higher and higher. Yeah, and people are losing their jobs, and there's uncertainty, and there's governmental uncertainty around whether there will be a, a second or third, or you know, depending on how you want to look at it, another round yeah. of funding. Right? We talked about that in the intro a little bit about how you know Democrats are looking to kind of push like a whether it's a, a loan forgiveness for first responders and, and frontline healthcare workers. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe I think the, the more conservative line of thinking right now is it's more important to open the economy, but there's, I guess my point is there's so much uncertainty around that, um, that it just, it, it's flabbergasting to me that the, that the, that the, the big wigs, the, the big investors are going, nah, man, we're trending in the right direction. I, I, I'm in the same camp as you are, Grant. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, uh, I, just I, think need, the, I just need you to explain what all of the investors are doing. Right? You're, you're the mouthpiece okay, so, for, for 100% of, of Wall Street. Uh, Ready, go. A lot of investors are, are in your shoes and, and my shoes, which is what the hell is going on here. Um, I'll try and give you my best parrot of like the, the rationale for people that are buying the stock market right now. And I think what they would argue is we're a lot closer to normal than it looks like right now in terms of, um, you know, they look to the Asian and East Asian economies that have started to come back and they see very fast recoveries and growth that inspires them. The growth will come back faster in the West. They look at historically low interest rates, which are going to, you know, spur um, just phenomenal growth and uh, potentially spur inflation, but that's an after concern for right now. Um, uh, but but historically low interest rates, and they look at um, historic government spending, which if you go back to your Keynesian economic yeah. textbooks, um, is one of the biggest lessons we learned in the Great Depression. Exactly, one of, it's it's scary in the long run, but in the short run, you have now injected a tremendous amount of uh, of, of of you know energy back into the economy um, that that will that will work uh, in the short term, and so. I think the people that are continuing to buy are saying, you know, those factors make this still, um, you know, if I can buy the economy of February at a 20% discount, um, I'm comfortable taking that investment right now. I'm not one of those people. Right. Um, but you know, that's, that's an argument you could make. And obviously a lot of people are making it. Sure. Um, I, 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 so I, it's, I, yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't put it in those explicit terms about how in interest rates are so low. And so if ever there were a time that the government needed to borrow two to three to eight trillion dollars or whatever this ends up being, 
the time when the 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 T bill yield is like one percent. I mean, it, it's it's basically free for them yeah. to borrow. Right? There's there's almost there's almost almost no cost to the government in terms of its long term interest liability from borrowing right now. And there's almost no incentive to save because interest rates are virtually zero. Right. And so you've created a hyper stimulated economy such that, um, you know, as soon as a recovery begins, it could, you know, you, the government has given this every tailwind behind its back. Uh, you know, I think of like a wildfire where, you know, the winds are there and as soon as the spark comes, clearly there's a camp of investors saying that it will catch fire and it will, it will go. Um, you know, uh, to your point, how do you reconcile that with projections of 20% unemployment that hasn't been seen in 100 years? I don't know. I, we're in unprecedented times. But I, I think that's the, the best case I've heard in favor of saying, you know, hey, yes, there's a lot of uncertainty. But given the way that the government has stimulated the recovery um, at a 20 to 25% discount to where I could have bought the economy just 10 weeks ago, this still feels like um, a, a good buy. Good time to buy, right? Yeah, I, I just saw a well an an unsighted quote of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, saying that extending the pandemic this the pandemic specific unemployment uh, benefits is like absolutely insane, and there's no way it's going to happen. So uh, I will be interested, and I guess I'll I'll be watching from afar to see yeah. how the market reacts to that. Um, yeah. As we kind of near the end of this, um, can have you thought about how this will? Obviously, you, you'll be tailoring your current investments to the to the times. Yeah. But ha- has there been any kind of larger paradigm shift, or hey, or discussions kind of in the in the at the high levels of, yeah, is this something that we should be prepared for in the future? Are we going to adjust our our investment strategies, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this might be less interesting uh, uh, to your, to your listeners, to my to mass you following, than, right? To to your mass following than a specific company or a specific trend, but the way that we're doing the job is going to change. So, and it has changed. So, um, when you're going to make an investment in someone. You want to, whether you're a venture capitalist or whether you're investing in your friend's company, you want to sit down with that person and look them in the face and say, I'm about to give you a lot of money. Um, I hope that it's coming back at some point in the future. And uh, what COVID has done is has made that impossible. So now you're having to build conviction, whether you're a founder taking money from an investor or an investor, you know, looking to put money into a, um, a company without that sort of uh, face-to-face interaction. And that is hard. And I have not figured out how to do that yet. Um, or, or, or at least I have not found a good way of doing it yet. Right. Um, I think a lot of people are in that same camp, whether you're an investor or whether you're a founder. Um, and so, you know, people are, are finding new ways of doing this, whether it's going to a, a, a beach or a park and standing 10 feet apart and having a walk, whether it's, um, you know, doing some sort of uh, or, or creating some sort of uh, digital platform that, you know, you both partake in some sort of, you know, forced digital interaction, which may or may not be successful. But it, it is changing the way that venture capital and asset classes is, is being forced to work. And uh, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about what that means for the business. I mean, maybe more relevant for 
for um, people that are, are small business owners uh, is that it, you could see, and I'm not sure this is the direction it could go, it, it will go, but you could see a democratization of access to, um, to money uh, and certainly to venture capital dollars because historically um, much of the venture capital investment has gone into geographic technology hubs whether that's Silicon Valley, whether that's New York, whether it's LA, whether it's Austin, Salt Lake City, Chicago. Um, but in a world where no one's meeting anyway, why does it matter where you are? So why I do you was, have to in, yeah. you know, invest in your backyard when uh, you could be in Costa Rica or Malaysia or Iowa and we could be having exactly the same format of interaction? What that, um, what that so. made me think of was, is basically, is this the money ball moment of... Of venture that's capital, a, I love that. That's where, such a good, such a good question, right? Where where the premise is these these old the old way of doing things was looking at yeah. a guy and going, "Hey, look at his jawline. Oh, exactly. He just, he just looks like a ball player. Exactly. He must right? have played college football at an Ivy League school. I'm going to invest in that guy. Right. Yeah. I, I let Leah sign him up. Right. And then instead is going, well, that guy, you know, that guy has a little paunch to him, and he's not the quickest. Yeah. But if this guy hits 280, and this guy hits 280, and this guy hits 280, okay, we're basically going to get the production of if we spent a ton on someone who looked like a ball player and sound like yeah. a ball player and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, I get translating that to the investment world are, are, are investments going to be based perhaps more even on merit because you're not having that, uh, that face to face necessarily and getting the, the vibes or letting like the human, the human side of things, uh, alter or in, impact, um, beyond what they should your decision to invest or not. I love that. I, I'm, uh, I'm going to borrow that money ball moment in venture capital because I think it's going to force us to at least evaluate that with a more critical lens because so much of, of um, the way that business is done is uh, done through the relationships and uh, that, you know, way of doing business creates, uh, you know, and perpetuates this insular community. And, and I hope that this does open up, uh, you know, both sides, uh, founders and investors to um, potentially a more democratic and meritocratic process. You know, usually at the end of these shows, I've struggled to find an up note to end on, <laughs> but I think we just nailed it. So on that note, uh, I I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say thank you so much for coming on. And uh, I hope to have you back in like 13 weeks. I uh, I appreciate it. At this pace, thirteen weeks will feel like thirteen years. Um, Both of our beards will pleasure. be full gray. Uh, it'll be f full gray, uh, probably touching the floor, uh, and uh, uh, we'll have to make sure it's it's really just audio at that point. Yeah, that sounds great. All right, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Grant. Oh wait, one more thing, Mark. Usually at the end of every show, usually after I say goodbye. I have, uh, I give a little, um, I call it my, un my unsponsor of the show. And it's okay. just a small business that I want to support. And that is just, I think, does a great job and is a quality product. Yep. So your, your homework before this show was to come up with one small business that you would like, that, that you think is, is worthy of the mass following of the show to go out and support. <laughs> and, be, and keep in mind, my, the, 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 our following is, all over the place, right? So it can't just this be is Ber going to Berkeley change specific. the lives. This is going to, this change, is going to change the lives. There's so a lot choose of wisely. Decision that's upon us for 
for anyone who finds their way to Berkeley, California, you would be doing yourself a great disservice by not going to Nabalon Bakery. It is the single best bakery in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, my family and I go there every day that it's open, which is five days a week. And we hate Mondays and Tuesdays when it's closed. So Nabalom. Say it one more time. How do you spell it? Yes. Uh, Nabalom. N-A-B-A-L-O-M. Nabalom Bakery in Berkeley, California. All right. If I'm ever in Berkeley, I'm going to Nabalom. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Thank you so much to Mark Goldberg for being on the show. Usually I promote the business of the guest, but they're a kajillion dollar investment portfolio. So if you wanna see what Index Ventures has invested in, just Google it. Thanks to former guest of the show, Ryan of Happy Moose Juice for letting us use Geronimo, a song by his band, Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates. The ever depressing unemployment and COVID stats come from the Department of Labor website, dol.gov and worldometer.com. As I always will, I am ending today's show with one unsponsored small biz recommendation. Today's business that you should support, if you can, is Sugar Mama Caramels. Nancy makes a freaking amazing caramel that was voted best dessert in San Diego. And if my word isn't enough, listen to this quote from their website. Quote, best caramels I've ever had, and I've had many. Matt. So trust Matt and do some social distance shopping from your couch at SugarMamaCaramels.com. That's Sugar, M-A-M-M-A, Caramels.com. No need to feel guilty because you're shopping small and helping the economy. Check out SmallBizGoneViral.com for all episodes and updates. That's biz with a Z. I would genuinely love to hear from you with your feedback, input, interview nominations, and suggestions for future shows. You can always send me an email to smallbizgoneviral at gmail.com. Just like with small businesses, if you like this podcast, share it with friends. Someday, hopefully soonish, this will all be over. And until then, stay inside, stay safe, and remember to shop small and buy local.